So hello and welcome, happy Friday. Today is Friday, June the 16th, and this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 212. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So I'm really glad that you're here. If you wanna know what we're gonna talk about, please look down in the video description below and everything will be there, including some possibly valuable links for you today. So what's going on outside? Well, it's 63 degrees Fahrenheit for starters. That's not very warm. That's only 17 Celsius, 86% relative humidity with, you know, a chance for rain. So that's a good thing. We had rain during the last week. In fact, we had an inch and a half of rainfall here during the past week in the northeastern United States, northwestern part of the state of Pennsylvania. What's the wind doing? 2.1 miles per hour, basically super slow to no wind. So I think the 2.1 is a gust. So what else is going on? How'd you like the opening sequence? That was shot this morning, by the way, because I'm doing a review of a really cool bee vac. You know that I use the Colorado bee vacuum for collecting honeybees, but I've been diddling around with the uh, everything bee vac. And that was my no shake install method, which by the way, is only for the most patient beekeeper ever. If you want to install your bees into a nucleus hive in this case, that way, but it's really entertaining. So I hope you look for that video in the coming week. What else is coming up? Also, I have an interview with Dr. Robin Underwood from Penn State Extension. And uh, we talk about a lot of good stuff there, some beekeeping things as well. So that might be helpful to you. And uh, the other thing is some people have been asking about the hyssop. I started inside my house during uh, winter time and I transplanted all of that outside. So it's part of a video also that takes you from seeds, germination, all the way through transplanting out into the yard. So everything looks great. None of the plants died out, even though we had really bad, uh, you know, we had no rain. So I put those plants out there and I had to water them, which is really rare for this neck of the woods. And uh, let's see, I think I just about covered everything. So all of these questions, and there's a lot of them, so buckle down, it's gonna be a long one. Uh, they're all submitted during the past week. I had to actually thin them out because there were too many uh, questions and topics submitted. But these are the ones that I felt would be the most relevant for this time of year as well. So that's the good news. What else? Anything else? Nothing I can, nothing I can think of. So let's get started. This is also a podcast. So you can listen on Podbean, iHeartRadio. There are even Apple Podcasts. It's on eight different podcast channels. So if you just Google the way to be, or if you have a favorite podcast system that you use, just do a search for the way to be, B-E-E. So, all right, we'll get started. The very first uh, question, number one, is not really a question. It's a comment from Patty, and I want to thank her for that. Rosanke, Texas. And uh, just said, just letting you know that Bee Weaver has queens for sale right now on their website. And that's because... Uh, they were out of stock, so their queens uh, were not available early this year. So that's good news, and I want to thank uh, Patty for letting me know about that. And that's a segue, I think, into this very next question, which is question number two that comes from Butch in Traverse City, Michigan. So I'm interested in learning more about your experience with Bee Weaver Queens. You mentioned you mostly requeen with bee weavers. I purchased one last August when I had a queenless hive and it was the only one of my four hives 
that survived winter. I recently received three additional Bee Weaver Queens and have installed them in some nukes. So far, I will say that their expansion, including my overwintered hive, has been slow. We had a very cold April this year, followed by a very warm May. These are the questions that I have. Number one, do you treat your bee weaver hives for varroa mites? So I'm gonna answer these because it's a seven part question. So I'll answer these one by one. Do I treat for varroa mites? I treat any colony of bees for varroa mites if they have them. So if they hit that threshold, 1%, so that's three per 300, um, then I'm gonna treat them, especially this time of year, uh, because I wanna keep those under control. But however, I understand the nature of the question, and that is, do the bee weaver bees have lower varroa mite counts than others? And from my experience, yes, they do. And they do a lot of grooming, by the way. They even bite the mites. So much like the Purdue ankle biters and some of these other lines of bees that do heavy grooming, uh, they bite mites. So that was one good thing. And that's because I have bottom boards, trays, and removable inserts on a lot of my hives, not all of them. I'm making that progress slowly. But um, I like to look at the mites and look at their physical condition when they're on a bottom board or an insert or something like that or in a tray. And uh, I'm very happy with the Bee Weaver line. So the question number two part of it is, have you done alcohol or other mite counts? Yes, I do. Alcohol or other mite counts. I've done both. So what are the results of the mite counts and how do they compare to your non-bee weaver hives? Well, I have to say my local stock is doing really good right now too. So that's, it could be derived from bee weaver. I will say that last year I didn't use any bee weaver queens. All I did was cycle back my own stock. And I did that through splits, swarms. Um, I mean, if a colony just swarmed on its own and I didn't catch it, although I'm very good at getting them in their temporary bivouac location, although not so good this year. That's because they're not spending very much time in that temporary spot and they take off in less than an hour. In some cases, they collect on a tree branch and they're gone in 25 minutes. So it's very frustrating. But anyway, uh, when it comes to mites, uh, the bee weaver line are my best. The ones that I'm raising myself now are actually doing very well too. But I think a lot of that has to do uh, with the way that I'm managing them, managing them and the fact that... Uh, I have it under control in almost all of my hives. When I say almost, that means I've got a colony right now that's showing two or three mites. That's going to be a treatment threshold next month. We'll talk about that probably a little bit later. And uh, how has the survivability of your bee weaver hives been? So now surviving is interesting. How long can I, the better question for me would be, how long can I keep those bee weaver queens around? And I did notice something because I checked their website to verify that they are available. They come marked and clipped. So, clipped means that the wings on one side of the queen has been clipped so that if she flies out of the hive, and she will, if they're going to swarm, she's going to leave, they're going to end up in a cluster on the ground, much like the cluster I found on the ground this morning. And uh, so those are... they. It, the clipping of the wings doesn't stop them from going anywhere. It just means they can't go very far. In other words, we won't be casting out bee weaver queens uh, to the surrounding area because they just can't fly that far. So we're ending up with their watered down or hybridized genetics from other local stock when their, their replacement queens fly out. 
So I collect those bee weavers and I can get three years out of them, I guess, if that's the nature of the question. Uh, survivability, they, they're really good for about three years. And uh, after that, I tend to requeen them just as a precaution because at three year mark, uh, when we're going into the fourth winter, I was thinking, you know, that I'm gonna breed these from these. I'm gonna split from those colonies after they're two years old. That way I'm also breeding for longevity. But then I realized um, such a small scale operation here that that kind of breeding um, priority might help a little bit in the surrounding area. But I think unless we're all on the same page, there are a lot of new beekeepers around me um, that are keeping bees within a mile. So well within flying distance, because if their bees are foraging up to a couple of miles and my bees are foraging up to a couple of miles, they're meeting each other halfway, they're overlapping. And I highly suspect that drift even happens uh, to other beekeepers that close. So unless we all have the same genetics or the same traits or favor the same kinds of bees, and hopefully they're not buying in packaged bees from you know, the deep south where they're not good wintering bees, um, they just get watered down. So uh, I can get two to three years out of them. So in other words, how rapidly do they expand in spring? And I have to say that uh, they're pretty good. Um, they don't build up large uh, brood patterns going into winter, like for example, the Italian bees would. And uh, so they have much more manageable numbers and uh, they tend to, to keep a small cluster of bees going into winter. And, but they were wintering, they're surviving. Cause that's the other thing a lot of people think, well, if you get them from Texas, uh, those aren't gonna winter in Pennsylvania. I think it really comes down to how healthy they are, um, what their varroa mite levels are and uh, size of cluster. I've had late season swarms, but of course, if they're swarming, then those are no longer bee weaver queens, unless I'm catching a bee weaver queen flying out. And then uh, I've had small swarms make it through winter. Uh, but you really, it's touch and go. Depends on a lot of variables. But um, overall, I would say survivability of bee weaver queens, how rapidly do they expand in spring? They're not as good as if we go back to the Italians, for example, Italian bees uh, tend to expand much faster and that's because they already have, they're brooding up in you know, early January. So you have to be much more active in your management of the Italian line, for example, than the bee weaver line. Bee weavers, you can kind of leave them on their own. Uh, you have to do landing board inspections. You have to kind of see what's going on and see that their brood is healthy, that they're queen right. You do have to do inspections every two to three weeks and uh, just make sure things are going okay. But you know what, they're kind of hands off, they're on autopilot. And they actually suit my style of beekeeping because I don't create those giant hives with five and six supers on them the way you see a lot of beekeepers do. And uh, so I think the bee weavers are already kind of genetically designed to suit my style and that's because they stay small and manageable. So it's rare for me to go beyond three boxes, four max during peak nectar. And then of course in wintertime, I'm down to two boxes, either a deep and a medium or double deeps. And so they do really well for that kind of management. Now, if you want these giant hives and if your goal is honey, I'm gonna say they might not be your bee. So uh, you'll wanna select your stock based on the things that you want. Some people ask if they're hot, if they're 
highly defensive and things like that, and they're not actually. So, you know, you can work them without gloves and things like that, depending on what kind of beekeeper you are and how calm you are and what else might be going on. But uh, in fact, my hottest hive was not even of the bee weaver line. Those were again, Italian bees, so which were a really large colony. And that's another thing too. Some of these larger colonies, once they get really big, we're talking a couple of boxes or a box and a half of brood with multiple frames, seven or eight frames of brood. Um, those colonies tend to be very powerful. They tend to have a lot of guard bees. They have a lot of defense. And so when you open those up, if you're not a super careful and competent beekeeper, you can end up uh, getting a response out of them and then this response builds. And it could be halfway through an inspection when you accidentally drop a frame or bump a box or um, you know, smash a bee and an alarm pheromone goes out. They can respond uh, in a way that you probably won't like. So yeah, my hottest hives have not been the, the bee weaver line. So I hope that's helpful. Question number three comes from John from Bear, Delaware. I was curious how to know when it's time to pull supers. My first super is heavily filled with nectar. So I added a second super. Should I leave them both on until they're ready to spin? Thanks. Okay, so here's the thing. And this is again, where backyard beekeeping may differ a little bit from commercial beekeeping. If you're a commercial or a sideliner, uh, the way you spend your time and money and resources and everything else is critical. So they tend to continue to super and leave the honey on the hives until it comes time for the honey harvest. And then they do all of their colonies at once, but we're talking up to 500 colonies of bees would be considered a sideliner. Uh, for backyard beekeepers, I have a completely different uh, take on how to manage surplus honey. And this is what it is. Uh, because we're backyard beekeepers, your honey extraction process and your spinning out or your uncapping and things like that. Usually we don't have automatic uncappers. If you're just a backyard beekeeper, we have uncapping knives and planes and forks and things like that. And so what you can do is sometimes you're doing a routine inspection and you've got three boxes on, which for me is what I try to limit it to during the year. And I see that it's wall to wall honey and it's capped. What can I do now? Well, I can pull every other frame. So if that's a 10 frame deep box or it's 10 frame medium, you can get a lot of honey out of that right now. And it's kind of cool to do that. And so one of the benefits of that is you need to go out when you're doing your inspections with uh, already drawn comb from previous honey harvests. So that when you find that condition, when you find that situation, you can pull frames out and you can immediately put new frames in and it's called checkerboarding. And it's very different than how you might manage brood, this is in the honey super. And keep in mind, I like to keep a deep brood box uh, for the bees, so everything that goes on in the deep. So the people that are saying, I can't lift a deep, um, I can't manage deep boxes. Uh, well, you have to consider, are you lifting it? Why would you? Because I don't rotate boxes, I don't under super and things like that. So you're not lifting that deep box. So it's food for thought. You might be just pulling individual frames and not the whole box unless you're trying to swap out the um, bottom board or something like that. And even if you're doing that, you can pull out individual frames, put them in your hive butler tote, 
and uh, then you can pull the box and do whatever maintenance you need to do on the material condition of that bottom board. But when it comes to the supers, I leave the deep, then there's the medium super, that gets filled with honey. That's for the bees, I never harvest it, I never fool with it at all. So there again, if I end up with a colony that's very productive and I end up with double deeps, it doesn't matter too because I'm not, other than for the inspections that we do, and we do our inspections before the nectar flow comes in or after. So coming up here in July would be an opportunity for inspections when the nectar flow is a little lighter. So it is a real thing to think about, but uh, when I come across these full capped frames, I pull them and then uh, push any partially filled frames to the middle or I checkerboard them. If everything is full and capped, then in between those, now we have a great opportunity to get some drawn comb. So you can put uh, whatever your favorite plastic uh, wax foundation is if you want to, because remember these are going in your extractor if you have one. And I have, uh, within the last couple of years, I shifted to an electric extractor. So, which by the way, was a really good move because it uh, allows me to do other things while the honey's being extracted. So if you're thinking of shifting from a manual to an electric, I highly recommend it. They're not that expensive. Um, so moving on, what I like to do is then if I get a bunch of them and if I visit, because it's rare that this is only gonna happen in one hive, if a lot of them are peeking out with honey and they're in jeopardy of being honey bound and things like that, then I'll go through and I'll collect a whole bunch of them from a bunch of different hives. And then we'll run them through the extractor. Three of the hives out there have flow supers on. So it's very easy to keep track of those. And you can, um, instead of checkerboarding where you're pulling and swapping frames, when you see that a frame is fully capped and uh, once it's capped, then you can draw the honey off of that. I don't like some people suggest harvesting part of a flow frame. Uh, I'd rather not do that. I'd rather get the whole frame and empty it complete and then restore it to its closed position and then let the bees uh, rework it. And they do that remarkably fast. So that's a very easy one because when you do those, it goes right from that frame into your jar and you're done. And someone recently wrote me that they, they got way over half a gallon um, of honey from one flow frame. Now that's very rare for me, but uh, I guess it can happen. So um, when I find them, I pull them rather than adding more supers and stacking higher boxes, I just pull frames and keep the bees in production that way. And that way we also don't have to wait till the end of summer. Um, most of the people have pulled or are currently pulling their uh, late May, early June honey crop. So, and we get a pretty consistent honey crop at the end of uh, the year again. And of course this one in spring in some parts of the nation, the spring honey crop is it. The rest of the time, all the bees are doing is building up in preparation for winter. But here I'm happy to say that we get a real boost of nectar now. And then going into August, uh, we get a second boost of nectar, which is also why we're not out of swarm season here. So we get a swarm season now, which is just wrapping up here in the next week or so. And then we get a second swarm season. That's because swarm seasons coincide with these big nectar um, resources that are gonna show up in the environment. So, um, so leave them until they're ready to spin. That's up to you. You know, I don't know how difficult it is for you to set up and I highly recommend if you can do it, 
that you get a shed or some kind of small building if you don't already have one and uh, set it up just as your honey house. And let me explain why that's really handy to have. First of all, these sheds where I live, uh, the sheds are built by the Amish. You can get a, you know, a 10 by 12 foot shed for less than $2,000. And it doesn't have to be fancy. And you really don't want windows in it except one window at the end in the gable. And it should be a hopper style window that opens out. And I'll explain why. If any bees follow you into your shed, you have the ability without windows to turn the lights off, have it absolutely dark with nothing but the one window in the end and a hopper style window flips out. So then the bees that collect on that window, you open the window, they fly out and now you're good to go. You close it back up and you're in the business of uh, extracting your honey. I think it's a really good idea to have a small building, a shed or something like that set aside and the reason is that's where your extracted honey frames will be. That can also be your winter storage for frames for your surplus boxes and things like that. And uh, it keeps everything right at hand. If you have to set everything up, put everything away, close everything up, then uh, it becomes a burden and then you don't do it as often as you should. You're not going to open that place up and make four gallons of honey unless everything's there ready to go. By the way, Pro tip, go to your building center, whether it's Lowe's, Menards, Home Depot, whatever it happens to be. They have those Formica countertops in there and they're pretty expensive, but just walk up to the department manager or even the store manager. They can't tell you they've got scratch and dent or returns and stuff like that. You have to ask them and ask them if they have scratch and dent on stuff or even find blemishes. Look at it really carefully. Oh, look at this over here. And then uh, if they've seen you before, they already know what you're about to ask for. And you can get a big discount on that stuff because now it's going to be in your honey shed. So you won't care if it's, you know, teal or whatever color the countertop is going to be because you're just, you're getting a deal. And then uh, now you've got a great place to stage your stuff because honey extraction is a sticky business and you really shouldn't have to be doing it in your kitchen. That's enough about that. But uh, I know that. I went a long way around the barn on that, but I just wanted to share it with you. These are my ideas, you know, because my uh, honey extraction corner is in a 24 by 32 foot building and I do other things in there too. So it would be so much better if I had just a space only for honey extraction. Question number four comes from Laurel in Lindenhurst, Illinois. I have uh, B-Smart insulated covers on my two hives this year. This weekend when inspecting, I found about a cup of fine, fluffy, white debris at the back of the hive and scattered over the tops of the frames. When I flipped over the foam and the inner cover, there was a nest of large black ants. They had tunneled all around the foam, all removed. If I replace the insulation, what should I use? Or do you think expanding foam would be used to repair it? Okay, so, and I know exactly um, what she's talking about and it's not um, that polystyrene insert in there. Uh, for the, when we're talking about the B-Smart Designs Insulated Intercover, oh, I got one right here, good. This is the B-Smart Designs Insulated Intercover. So it's really good. However, by the way, 
I misplace these little black caps. If anybody's listening at Smart, it would be great if they provided those. So this is the shell. This is the core that you get, right? And that's what we're talking about, but there's a hole in the back of it, or the front, depending on how you set it up. This little hole right here is designed, if you can see it, for venting. And there's a little channel that goes through here to this riser, which is how the bees come and go through. And if you wanted to vent or if they needed a top entrance, that's what that's for. And this is the polystyrene insert. Polystyrene is 98% air. I think that's interesting. Here's the channel that we're talking about. Let me see, is that too? There you can see it. That's the channel. And the way I set mine up, I put this side so that channel is closed. So ants and other things can't chew it. Now I've not had that issue myself. However, I can tell you how to fix it. If you're gonna leave your insulated inner cover separate pieces, which what I do is I put mine together, I don't change the configuration, so I'm not swapping between vented, not vented, and that kind of thing. Mine are closed all the time, no top venting. So I've put mine in and I have used expansion foam all the way around it. I also plug that little hole on the end. And uh, so ants can't get in even to get started. Uh, because there's also a feeder shim, which is a box around it, and I use the expansion foam to bond the box to that insulated inner cover, so now it's a unit. So when I pull it up, it's all one thing. But if you do have it so you can pull that out, guess what you can do? Reynolds aluminum foil. So if you get uh, aluminum foil and you just take that insulated inner cover there, and you wrap your aluminum foil on that, or you can even use a spray adhesive. You know, I don't know if you're using this channel or not, but uh, you can temporarily just put it in there or you can attach it to it with adhesive. You can even use wood glue, which will hold it on there. And you smooth it all up and guess what the ants won't do? Ants won't chew aluminum foil. So that's my tip on that. Wrap it with aluminum foil or put an aluminum foil sheet down and up on the sides while you're not using the vented part and then uh, you're good to go and they're not going to get in there and tear up all of that uh, plastic foam insulated insert that's annoying by the way how'd you get rid of the ants overall because they were nesting in it they're tunneling into that polystyrene so anyway get the ants out Pull the styrene, oh yeah, pull the styrene, put it in the freezer, make sure there's no eggs or anything. I doubt there would be, but uh, make sure there's nothing else in there since you can't see through all the tunnels and uh, run them through the freezer 24 hours and then wrap them with aluminum and put it in your top of your hive. Question number five comes from Christina from Carlsbad, New Mexico. Dear Fred, I have been a beekeeper since 1998, so before the turn of the century. And through involvement in various clubs and seminars, I'm pretty well educated about keeping honeybees. I would think of myself as a master beekeeper. I also enjoy mentoring newbies, and my question is, what certification makes a master beekeeper? Okay, so... And it's true, there's a lot of people out there that have been keeping bees for a really long time, for decades. And uh, they might even be the go-to people at your bee club and things like that. And they might be very active in beekeeping organizations. 
And I'm really glad that Christina does mentoring for new beekeepers and things like that. So why do you even need the title Master Beekeeper or what makes one? What makes what certification makes a Master Beekeeper? So we'll just have a quick discussion about this because others are curious too. It's not the first question I've had about it. Um, the thing is, why do you need one and what is a Master Beekeeper anyway? And what are the different levels of qualification? First of all, there is no national standard for a master beekeeper. There's nothing stopping a bee club from setting up a, you know, a list of qualifications and establishing their very own master beekeeper certification. And I had a classmate at Cornell that um, became a master beekeeper and then was actually just handed a master beekeeper certification from his state. In other words, they just looked at the qualifications that he had accomplished to become a master beekeeper at Cornell, and they said, oh, you meet our requirements. Here's your certificate. Here's your patch. You're a master beekeeper for our state. So I thought that was interesting, too. So they set their standards to set their qualifications, and you're going to find out when you look at the different master beekeeper pro programs across the nation, uh, you'll find they have different even age requirements. For some of them, you only have to own a beehive. And some people are bothered by the fact that they have to own a beehive to become a master beekeeper. And uh, so once again, they set the standard, how long you have to have been keeping bees, how old you even are. Uh, it was very curious to look at one university in the South that had no age limit. So in other words, if you were a super sharp 12 or 13 year old, you could become one. So they have their stages of qualification and it's very interesting. So the thing is, why have it and what is it? I mean, that's the other part to explain. If you're going to be, and this is, I think, what caught a lot of uh, people that entered the program that I did, what caught them off guard was they didn't realize that it wasn't just um, validation of what you know, uh, understanding bee biology, understanding pest control, understanding uh, management of your bees, um, and also being able to serve as a consultant, for example, in commercial beekeeping and things like that, they didn't realize that it was going to be a big public speaking thing. In other words, you have to do research of your own. So you have to come up with topics and things that you want to explain and you have to present that. And uh, often you have to present it the way I'm doing it right now. We're talking uh, through YouTube, but some of the presentations are through video. Uh, you have to be able to walk into a room full of people and be able to discuss or present a topic related to beekeeping or bee maladies or bee management, uh, bee biology. And uh, then you need to be able to communicate that well enough to be what I basically consider a master beekeeper is, is a very good mentor, a public speaker, and someone who kind of makes a commitment, I hope, to continue to study and continue to improve and continue to validate what they think they already know about beekeeping. And so I think we've met these people too, um, outstanding beekeepers, they have incredible knowledge, but uh, they're not comfortable at all giving a practical demonstration to a group of people and uh, speaking to people as if they knew nothing about the bees. Because that's another part of it. A lot of beekeepers uh, tend to skip over some of the fundamentals and that's because they make an assumption that people know it already. The other thing is uh, they've been through it for so many years, for so long, through so much repetition, that they just forget and they omit things. 
So I think a big part of that is uh, continuing to assess yourself and continuing to uh, improve on your own knowledge and practices and being willing to change and adapt. And then you can communicate that to other people. So I think the biggest part of it is um, that uh, you know how to keep bees alive, how to teach other people about it, and how to kind of be an example of uh, what beekeeping can be and, and show some real integrity. And so part of this is I did a little research before I responded to this because I thought some of the fun things um, would be, I mean, there are things, this relates even to other things that I've done. Uh, when I became a master beekeeper, uh, I had a lot of years already as a beekeeper and I was already giving um, lectures and seminars and presentations. And so uh, I felt like I wanted to go through a program that required an academic achievement I wanted a program that would be challenging. I didn't want it to be just a do your time and get your certificate kind of thing. I wanted it to be um, hard, for lack of a better word. I wanted it to be college level curriculum. Um, and a lot of people will say, well, that doesn't make a beekeeper, you know, erudition, you know, book knowledge. And you're true. That's right. Uh, book knowledge by itself does not make a good beekeeper and wouldn't make and shouldn't make a master beekeeper. It should not all be paperwork. So the other part of it is now you have to have practical factors. And so you have to consider who are the teachers at this place. So some of the teachers for us, you know, Dr. Thomas Seeley, you can't beat that. Um, we had uh, from Scientific Beekeeping, Randy Oliver. We had a lot of big name researchers in uh, involved in our education programs too. So that's the other thing if you're, and I'm, I'm Presenting this for those that are thinking about a program, number one, they want to teach, they like public speaking, you like bees, you're ready to put in the hours, and then you want to have a continuation of self-improvement in beekeeping, and then be interested in passing that on uh, at all levels. So that's why I chose um, Cornell. The other thing is at Cornell University, there were other people that were there that I already respected. Um, Dr. David Peck is from Cornell. Uh, he was not one of our instructors, but uh, they just there's a lot of very serious entomologists that have come out of there and their research is very well known. Uh, even Dr. Samuel Ramsey, for those of you who know uh, his research with the road destructor mite, he was at Cornell as well. So uh, at Cornell, they have the dice lab. So if you look at the history of master beekeepers in the United States, that's what I looked up. The oldest program in the United States for master beekeeping was by Dr. Roger Morse at, where else? Cornell University in 1978. So to me, that doesn't seem that long ago. But anyway, um, he did that at the Dice Lab at Cornell for honeybee studies. And that was founded in 1955. Um, and of course, by Dr. Morse. And it's named for Dr. Harry L. Dice, I know this is fascinating to you. He was a professor of entomology at Cornell from 1924 to 1955, and that's located in Ithaca, New York. So now that's a program um, that later they pass on to EAS to be stewards of that, the Eastern Apiculture Society. So the Eastern Apiculture Society adopted most of the program and uh, they're also associated still with Cornell and they administrate the program. Uh, 
So Cornell University offers a master beekeeper program, education, coursework, and practical factors, and of course, the ultimate certification as a master beekeeper. And the Eastern Apiculture Society also has a set program, which is based off of the Cornell model. So that's very interesting too. And uh, so what I would suggest is find a program if you're looking for one. If you already consider yourself a master beekeeper, um, and a lot of people do. I mean, they've just been in it so long. The assumption is made that this person is a master at what he does or at what she does. They are masters of keeping bees. Look at what they do. Look at how fluid they are in the bee yard and things like that. You don't need a piece of paper to say that you're competent in beekeeping. I think there are a lot of people, whether there's professors, there's entomologists, they're not master beekeepers. So they, you know, are definitely deep into the science of beekeeping. And then on the flip side of that, there are people that are purely practical in their beekeeping practices, and they don't have the slightest interest in reading some deep book on honeybee anatomy or honeybee biology and things like that, because they have a university of direct experience approach to beekeeping. And I have no fault with that at all. So it's just a matter of, you know, do you need the title? Do you want the title? I wanted to make sure that I uh, touched on things that I might not. For example, if I'm just a backyard beekeeper, and I don't mean that as, you know, just a backyard beekeeper, like you can't know your way around if you're, if you're a backyard beekeeper, but we're small scale. And uh, I was very interested in every part of it. So I do deep dives in everything I do. I throw myself into it 110%. I wanted to make sure that I didn't have gaps in my knowledge and ability. And I thought taking a program like that would shake it down. And so uh, it's not for everybody because you can spend a lot of time studying. And there are a lot of people that do not want to do that. And the other part of it is you're going to be in front of people. You're going to give a presentation. It's unavoidable. And uh, you're going to do research papers. And you maybe even are going to come up with your own experiments with beekeeping. And the funny part of that is in my coursework, there was a, a classmate. And when I say classmate, you know, we were all remote. So sometimes we would have Zooms and you'd see each other, but somebody was talking about this guy that did this research on, you know, whether honeybee healthy, pro-health, uh, and so forth uh, were preferred by the bees and, you know, whether or not just sugar syrup by itself was going to be good. And he was giving this presentation and talking about it. That's my study. So that's something I did years ago, uh, just because I have a YouTube channel and I put it out there. So I found my own stuff being cycled back to me. And then I had to introduce myself and say, yeah, that's, that's mine. I did that. It's my backyard, just basic backyard science, finding out what bees do. So if you are interested as an education, lots of colleges, Penn State offers programs in beekeeping. Um, so pick your favorite university that's local to you. University of Florida has a big program. University of Florida has a bee lab. So um, I recommend finding the one that's going to offer what you want out of it the most. And so what makes a master beekeeper? Somebody who's met the requirements at whatever the master beekeeper program is. And then um, gain the certificate. It should take a couple of years minimum to do once you get started. And each university or program should be posted online. You should be able to see what the content's going to be. Find out if it's going to be challenging to you. You don't want it to be a walk in the park or how's it worth it? How's it worth your time if it's just another 
accolade that you get and something else to frame and put on your wall. So I hope I answered that question. I don't think it's necessary um, to get one, to get the certification, but uh, I also think it's great for those who really want to make sure that they've hit A to Z of beekeeping and pick a really good program so that you definitely, you're going to get your money's worth. They also have, there's a broad spectrum of what that's going to cost you. Moving on to question number six, Jimmy from New Albany, Indiana. I just have one hive and I'm going to have a second one. Normally, I see hives set up side by side, about four feet apart. Where I want to set up my hives, they would be in shotgun formation. My question is, how far apart should they be? So these studies have been done, by the way, finding out if colonies are in straight rows, very close together. The short answer to this is, the more distance you can put between your bees, the better. Sometimes people have um, shown me pictures of their backyard setup and they've got a stockade fence and stuff like that. And uh, you'll see the stockade fence within a foot and a half of the back of their hives. And the first thing I think when I see that is, oh no, how are you going to move around the hives and do the work that you need to do? So if you're planning the layout of your apiary and you've got a kind of restricted area, it doesn't sound like Jimmy does, but um, the utility aspect of it is make sure you've got the space to pull your cart behind your hives uh, to drive your tractor back there, whatever you might be doing, depending on the scale, think into the future, you know, how much access you need around it. This is, we just recently talked about my way to be academy building. You know, why did I stop at that specific size? Well, because I need to drive around it. I need to mow. Um, if I had more space, it would have been bigger. So that's the, the fun part of it. When you're setting up your hives, think of the utility. Think of how accessible they're going to be for you. Also consider landmarks, for example. So if you've got some unique trees, bushes, shrubs, and things like that, you can park a hive near each of those, which leads me to something else. Um, I've started spreading out because I've got another apiary. It's one big apiary, but it's divided by a fence. And I have a lower field and an upper field and things like that. So what I've done is the deer eat the leaves off of my linden trees. And these linden trees are struggling to, you know, to make progress. Everything loves to eat the leaves of a linden tree for some reason, but... I decided, since I have extra nucleus hives that I'm putting together, why not park one of them at the base of each linden tree? Because you know what I found out? The deer won't go right up to the front of a beehive and eat the leaves off a tree, hearing the sound of bees buzzing. So, what did I do? I'm going to put one in front of every linden tree. So that worked as a utility thing, but it also has a practical application for the honeybees themselves, and that is, there's a tree by that hive, and so if this hive is on this side of the tree, the next hive will be on the other side of another tree, and so on, because it helps the bees navigate and orient, orientate themselves, orient themselves towards uh, specific geo configurations. So landmarks are important, and I'm starting to, you know, I don't think having hives butted right up against each other is a great idea. I also understand commercially the utility aspect of that i get it you have to have a pallet with four hives on it because you're going to load it on a truck and things like that 
Backyard beekeepers, we're not moving our hives. We're setting them up nine times out of 10. They never move again. So if you set it up right and it's in a place where you want it to be and where you can take care of it, where you can mow and do maintenance and all this other stuff, uh, you end up with you know, a hive that's basically going to be static for as long as you keep bees. So we don't need to do that. Um, but then Randy Oliver, again, to quote him, did studies showing that bee drift can happen great distances. So, because that was the big thing, and old timers would say this all the time. If you've got a row of beehives, um, they will say that your last hive in the row is going to be full of bees due to drift. And that may be true, but it's not the only way that bees drift around. So I think by changing the slight orientation, the angles of your hive entrance, so we always go east by southeast, south by southeast, or directly south, so even changing, you know, the angle and direction of your landing board can also aid your bees finding the correct box to occupy, to get back to when they're foraging and not make the mistake of landing on another hive and getting in there. So those are all the things to think about. To go back to the Dice Lab at Ithaca, New York, uh, they ended up spreading out a bunch of their hives. And these are where the master beekeepers go to do their practical testing and they have to get into the hives and be observed. And uh, they've spread them all out. So it looks like, you know, a tiny runway with little offshoots. And at the end of each offshoot is a beehive. And uh, so the more you spread them out, the easier it is for the bees. The less cross, you know, activity and drift there should be. But uh, the jury's out on all of that. So I take it all the way back to utility and watching your bees come straight in and go straight to their hive without... Uh, landing on the wrong one or approaching the wrong one, hovering and going over and then going into the correct box. Then you know we need to do something to change some configurations to make it easier for them. Given long answers. Question number seven is from Lynn from Russell, PA. We purchased Better Comb to support two nukes we were to receive in mid-June. Here are some of the Better Comb cells it says, are some of them larger for drone brood? And if not, is the queen able to lay drone eggs in better comb? My understanding is that the queen uses the outer edges of the comb for drones. Perhaps the worker bees adjust the better comb cell size to accommodate drone eggs. And they do, by the way. And uh, for those of you who don't know, better comb is synthetic beeswax. It's sold by Better Bee here in the United States. And uh, it allows you, especially for new beekeepers that don't have drawn comb to put in your hives to help the bees out when they're just getting started. When you have a small colony, a swarm, like I hived this morning. Um, if they're really small, then if they've already got drawn out comb in the hive, it helps them get going right away. But what I'd like to say here is when it comes to the synthetic better comb, which for in every possible way, it behaves just like beeswax, and the bees treat it the same. They go right to work on it. They repair it. You can spritz it with sugar syrup to get them working it earlier if you want. But I don't ever fill the whole box with it. So what I do is I checkerboard it. So I might have plastic foundation that's heavily waxed, and then I might have better comb, and then another foundation heavily, heavily comb. <laughs> better comb. And then after that, I might have a foundationless frame or something like that. If you want cut comb and you want the bees to make 100% of it, then you can use the better comb as guides for putting in foundationless frames, and then they'll draw their own uh, comb there. 
So I don't use it all. First of all, the stuff's expensive. So it sits on the shelf. And uh, I bought their pre-wired frames and I have videos showing how to wire the better comb and also my review of it. Uh, some people were saying that the bees would not produce brood in it, that they would only put nectar in it. And then, well, all the practical testing that I did uh, from start to finish, out of the box, into the frame, into the hive, and then later visiting the hive to show how the bees used it, they used it for nectar and honey. They also used it for brood. And they finish out the edges all the way around, where if it's foundationless, they left a gap at the bottom to traverse through the frames. So the other thing is uh, for drones, you do see some drone comb uh, in better comb too, because they can modify those. And they do that mostly at your outer frames. So what I would say is don't fill your box with better comb. Let some of the outer frames, your first position or 10th position, uh, let that be foundationless or let that have uh, another kind of foundation to let the bees draw it out on their own. And then they're sure to build a certain percentage of that Usually about 20% of your colony can be drone comb. We know that they attach drone comb to the bottom of your frames. We also know that often when you're pulling apart your hives for inspection, you're lifting a box off between the top bar of the frames down below and the bottom bar of the frames up above, you see brace comb and you'll see comb that includes drones in there. And it's alarming to a lot of new beekeepers when they're pulling those apart and they pull apart a pupa cell and there it is a big fat drone and it can look like a queen to people and they get concerned but nine times out of ten those are drones that are pulled apart when we're pulling apart the frames so another thing is um slatted racks and things like that tend to allow your bees to draw down lower and they'll attach more drone brood to the bottom of those frames so the amount of space you have between the bottom of your frames and the surface of your bottom board also plays a role in what they do with that added space. But not to worry, I just would not fill the whole box with nothing but better comb. Hold it back, keep it for those emergencies, those late season swarms and things like that so they can go straight to work and not use all of their resources to draw new comb. So, and I'll probably link a video uh, in association with question number seven so that you can see if you're curious about better comb, how it works, what it is. Question number eight comes up from David Baldwin, Missouri. I have one hive that is particularly aggressive. It is my largest, strongest, most established hive. I replaced the queen on May 3rd with a queen known for docile genetics. On May the 12th, I noticed open brood of all stages and the queen appeared to be settled in. I inspected again on June 10th. Two deeps, one full super, one empty super. I was surprised to find it was still aggressive. Upon further inspection, brood was limited to only three frames. No swarm or supersedure cells. The rest of the frames in the deeps were full of nectar, one-third capped honey. What could possibly be going on? Okay. And that's long enough to start to see the behavior of, uh, of course, the workers from that queen. You still may have residual workers from the previous queen, so the genetics are not completely out of there because now we're talking June 10th. You installed her on May the 3rd. Um, so they're just now getting out to guard bee status and things like that. So you'll see the personality change. But here's what I want people always to understand. First of all, as I mentioned earlier on, these larger colonies can have attitudes, right? And they can be very defensive and they have a lot of resources. And so 
they have a lot of bees that they can put out to come after you. So it doesn't say what, you know, what it means to be defensive or how aggressive they are, how many bees are coming after you, what the behavior is, are they trying to sting you, are there a hundred of them, are there ten, are there five, or is there just three that are angsty? So these are all, there are a lot of different levels. So when questions like this are asked, we kind of need to know, are you allowed to even walk past your bee yard 20 feet away without picking up a guard bee? Is it only when you're lifting the cover to take a look uh, that they're defending and acting like that? Are you using a smoker? How are you using the smoker? Are you giving a couple of light puffs at the landing board? Are you cracking a little bit, light puffs there? And are you very careful in how you manage your bees? All of these things can contribute to what your bees response is. Is it a windy day? Is it a cloudy day? Is there rain in the forecast? Is uh, what time of day are you going in? Are you going between noon and 3 p.m.? Those would be optimum times. Uh, what's going on around the hive? Are there pests that are harassing your bees? Right now, by the way, I've been noticing the European hornets this year. I barely saw them last year. European hornets are our only true hornet that's here. The murder hornet, by the way, the Asian giant hornet has not been spotted. So they might have that under control in Washington state. But uh, so depending on what's harassing or bothering your bees can also have an impact on they might be ready to go, already sensitized. Uh, you might have a night predator that's coming around. So if you don't have some kind of game camera or some kind of motion activated camera that can show you what's going on in your bee yard, are there vibrations? Are there, is there smoke? Is there noise? what's going on around them that could also contribute to the stress of that colony. So, and once again, it's these large colonies, but of course I would wait them out. The other thing is what kind of beekeeper are you when you go in? Uh, there should be no banging, slamming and dropping. Um, you know, sometimes I'll watch somebody manage their, their beehive and you know, they'll actually, to get a look at their bees, they'll take the frame and hit it on the edge of their box to look at the bees and why? First, that's not good for the bees at all. <clears throat> Vibration, banging, thumping, slamming, uh, sudden movements, fast movements, um, smoke just enough, because it's the other thing some new beekeepers uh, will oversmoke a hive. They just keep smoking, keep smoking, keep smoking. When you do that, they, they get all flustered about that too. So it has the opposite effect. So light smoke until you, when guards are watching you, you give a couple light puffs of smoke and they turn away and go about their business, you're done. You don't have to keep smoking. So hot smoke, that's the other thing. Some people, when they really puff, when they, and some new people, I have a grandson that just wants to get a hold of a smoker and smoke everything. And he used a vacuum cleaner to vacuum up the smoke. Now the vacuum smells like a smoker. Has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But I'm just saying, um, all of these things are contributing factors. Um, what do you smell like? Is Does another beekeeper get the same response? So. If you have a friend that's also a beekeeper that wears a different suit, that has a different cologne, um, do they get the same response from those bees? So bring in somebody else to see what's going on. And uh, so other than that, uh, the genetics, if you know you had a docile genetic line there, give it time because the rest of those bees through attrition are thinning out. So those are just some ideas for other people that might be listening or watching. Um, things that might be annoying your bees. So, and I better not 
hear that you're going in there with a gorilla suit on, which they would definitely react to. Question number nine comes from Meg in uh, Fredericksburg, Virginia. What would happen if you were to combine a laying worker hive with a healthy hive? Is there still a chance for those worker bees or do you just let the hive die out without combining with another? Or maybe there are other options to save those laying worker bees. Okay, so this is something that a lot of people, and it's part of my fluff section at the end today, um, things to watch out for. We've had swarms, and that means that there are virgin queens around. And if they don't get out, I recently took a really cool, in my opinion, photograph of a dragonfly. And other people were saying, you kill those dragonflies because those things will kill my queens, and my queens don't make it back from mating flights. Uh, no, because dragonflies are cool looking. But anyway, uh, you need to pay attention to your bees. And because I know that if somebody's got laying workers, they haven't been in their hive and haven't evaluated it for at least three weeks. So that's why in under 21 days, if you've got a maintenance calendar or something like that, you want to be validating whether or not you've got a queen that's actively laying. Okay, so let's move that aside. Uh, for Meg here, we have laying workers for sure. It doesn't say how they know there's laying workers, but how can we defeat the laying workers? That's the game. Not a fan of shaking them out. And this is interesting because we just talked about this uh, with Dr. Underwood. So that's going to be part of that interview. We're going to talk about the laying workers. So uh, for those of you who don't understand, when the queen is gone and the queen pheromone is missing, uh, the worker bee, the female bee, uh, can activate her ovaries and start to lay eggs and she only produces drones. So we have a colony in jeopardy of collapse. So now we want to fix it. One of the ways you can fix it is you can go to another hive and you can pull frames of brood with eggs or you can even pull a queen if you've got one of the resource hives that I currently use. Uh, in this case, if it's a laying worker hive, I uh, would just bring in the brood with eggs and open brood and capped brood and a couple of frames of it. And I would pull two frames of the laying worker brood, by the way, and I'd get those out and put those in. So we don't need a bunch of drones in our other colony that are produced by laying workers. Those drones aren't very good anyway. They're small, they're undersized, they're not excellent. So we can just swap out the frames though, because when you pull brood from one hive, you need to replace the space. So when you're pulling brood from the brood area of a really strong hive, push them all together and the replacement frames that you're putting back in that hive put on the outside of that. So we're not completely disrupting their brood, right? Other than the fact that we stole a bunch of it. So those eggs, open larvae and uh, everything else should help uh, with the laying worker hive. Now they've got a pheromone shift. Now they have an opportunity to produce a real queen and they should jump on that opportunity. So very often that works. Now, the other thing is you could combine the hive. So we've got a laying worker hive and we've got an established colony that has a queen and their queen right. That's the term. So now we can take the laying worker hive, assuming all the equipment's the same size, 10 frame, 10 frame, and so on. And we can put them right on top of the brood box of that established colony that's got the queen. And the laying workers will either stop laying or what happens is the resident colony of the queen right hive, they start policing up those eggs. So in other words, they won't allow them to lay eggs as laying workers and they'll just ingest them. That's right, they eat the bees' eggs. 
And then those workers either, you know, they can leave or they can stop producing eggs. So it does work. It's a great way. You don't have to just let them all die out and expire. They will make the shift fairly quickly and then they'll go right back into contributing to the new colony that you've given them. So I think it works either way. There's lots of options. So that's why there's often when you ask two beekeepers, you get three answers. It could be even all three answers are viable ways of dealing with an issue. Question number 10 comes from Michelle Armstrong. Two questions. One, if the swarm already has a queen, why would they go to a QMP noodle? So QMP, QMP, queen mandibular pheromone, synthetic temp queen. I also, that's in my video about the new everything vac. So we're going to show that. Um, but anyway, when a colony swarms, so if they, if the swarm has a queen, why would they land where temp queen is? That's the question. Temp queen gives them a pheromone and I leave those temp queen noodles on a branch all summer long. I don't even take it away. It just, it reduces and reduces and reduces as far as the remaining scent goes. And the thing is, um, they'll land on that because there's a pheromone. I have a theory about this too, by the way. There's a pheromone on that branch that lets them know that other queens have landed there. And so they land there too, and their queen joins them. So you can get a swarm with a queen to collect on that branch. I can really pick it out fairly quickly if there's a queen in that cluster, or if it's just a bunch of random foragers that decided to collect around this pheromone lure, right? And this is not the same as a swarm lure, right? It gives the impression that there is a queen there, but it's so reduced that she's not dominant. Now, when that stuff is fresh out of the package, we had that laying worker situation that we just talked about. That's what it's designed for. In other words, not to suppress laying workers, but when you realize the colony is without a queen, you can put a temp queen pheromone noodle in there and that suppresses then those workers um, alteration. In other words, when they become layers, it suppresses their desire to reproduce and their ability. And then when you have a new queen coming in, a real one, you pull that out within even a couple of hours and put the new one in and they're good to go. So anyway, um, that's what it does. It makes them think, and here's what I think too. Why do they go to the same branches, same trees over and over again? Well, if a swarm previously landed on a branch and it broke and, and they weren't successful and the, and the branch wasn't there anymore, uh, they would know that's not the place to land, right? So if there's a residual pheromone, just stay with me for a second. This is just a theory. If there's a residual pheromone, that tells the bees that are leading the swarm around because the queen goes with them. She doesn't lead them, right? When they land on a tree branch, it already has a pheromone of a previous queen. They think, huh, that, branch, that tree branch can support a swarm of bees. So they go there over and over again. And so it happened today and I cut away some of the branches because I needed to get a ladder next to a tree and I put the branches on the ground, not even thinking that there's a QMP zip tied to that branch on the ground. And what happened? Bunch of bees went to that branch on the ground. So interesting stuff. Question number two says, I had one hive swarm three times up in a tree, too high for me to get. Can I leave a QMP noodle on a lower branch as a bivouac locator. Okay, here's the thing. What are they doing? 
part of this story is they've landed on that tree multiple times. They've established their pheromone on that branch. And that's why we see swarms on the same branch on the same tree over and over again. So you have to do something to modify the pheromone residue on that tree branch and give them a better alternative, this other branch where you want them to go with your QMP. So you can do that with a stronger QMP. And, uh, but the thing is they're refreshing that every time. So this is why I talked about this early in the year, get the QMP out there, choose the branches that you want your bees to land on and assign it to those branches and 50%, yeah, 50% of your bees are going to swarm somewhere where you don't want them, but you're going to get those gift swarms that are going to pick the branch you designated and they're going to be there. And that's a great thing because now you walk up at eye level and you collect your bees. So that's it. It's not a lure. Do not put temp queen in your swarm traps or your swarm boxes and places where you want them to reside. It's strictly for the temporary bivouac location. Question number 11. This comes from Slava790. That's the YouTube name. Is the high price of an Apame hive worth it? Okay. I wasn't going to answer this question because is it worth it? That's, that's subjective. What do you want? So I'm going to make some comparisons right here. Now the Apame hive, for some people, they'll never get it. They'll never buy it. And why is that? There are some people that are 100% against plastic at all of any kind in any hive. They don't want it. So that's not what we're talking about. Uh, if you don't like plastic, you're not going to like a plastic hive. So for those who don't know, an Apame hive, and I'm going to put a link uh, down in the video description here that uh, you can go and see the evaluation of the Apame hive. And this is my first year with them. So is it expensive? Expensive is really a matter of what do you want to pay? You know, I was told early on when I was doing oil painting of maritime scenes, I was told by another maritime painter that I can't sell my paintings for this price. And what he was saying is I was underpricing myself. My whole point was, um, you know, Ford makes a Pinto. They also make a Mustang. So I'm painting a Pinto right now, but I can later paint a Mustang if I want to, so if I need more money. And uh, the thinking is that uh, something has to be, valuable to the person that's getting it. You know what I mean? So what's your time worth? Some people that are keeping bees are retired because a car gets you down the road. Why do we need a Corvette? Why do we need a Jaguar or anything else when you can get, you know, an Escort or a, you know, a Civic or whatever you want to get, something small. Uh, they all do the same thing. So we don't all need a really expensive hive. However, there are aspects, now that I've said that, about the Apame Hive that are appealing to people, and here's why. It comes fully assembled. It comes in the boxes. I was very impressed. This thing is ready to go out of the box. You could get it today, put bees in it today. And that's because um, there's nothing else to do. You don't have to paint it. You don't have to put a finish on it. It's not going to degrade due to weather. So you can put that out there, and it's ready to go. That has value to people who don't have a lot of time to put a hive together and uh, put a finish on it and get it ready to go. Cause you have to do that well in advance. If you're going to put some kind of wood finish on your hive, 
you do that well in advance of the bees uh, occupying it. So apame hives um, come ready to go. The other thing is uh, you can use their frames, you can use your own frames and things like that. So they're adaptable. They're insulated. You don't have to add any insulation. They um, have an insulated cover. And so there's a lot of aspects to that that are already done for you. But I did some price checking on some different things. So I want to make this relevant. Okay. So their most expensive hive, which I happen to have, is the Ergo Plus Double Brood Box Beehive Set. Well, that's not the most expensive. Ergo Plus is $370 Double Brood Box. That's the whole thing. Double Brood Box, bottom board, uh, feeder, and then of course the outside cover. And that thing is ready to go. Their most expensive has four boxes. It's got two deeps, two medium supers. It sells for $580 right out of the box, it's ready to go. So you put that on your hive stand, you put your bees in it. It already has a feeder. So there's no frame feeders or anything like that. The feeder is an integrated part of its inner cover and they are very well designed. So I wanna move you over. So that is their most expensive. If you went shopping and you were told you could get any hive from them and you bought the most expensive one, that's $580. Now to put that in perspective, I wanted an observation hive years ago. And I wanted the best one, of course, because I wanted it to succeed. I wanted it to be really good. And so I found from a company called Bonterra Bees, they had a swing view uh, observation hive. So it's four deeps high and uh, swings. So for me to make a video of it, this thing swings on the entrance and so on. Now that was only eight deep frames in it, which by the way, I don't use that anymore. When it comes to observation hives, I go three frames deep. But what do you think that observation hive cost me? It's only made out of pine, $825. And guess what else? It did not have glass with it. So I even had to buy the glass and the glass was 150 bucks a panel because I wanted really good glass on it because I'm gonna video and photograph through it. So I'm at $1,100, I'm at $1,200 easily for an observation hive that's not going to yield any income. It's not going to yield, you know, honey and things like that. So the income is what we're doing right now on YouTube and uh, people that were interested in my ability to see that. So this is related, right? So now we have a, an observation hive. You're not going to make a bunch of money getting honey out of that, but it's $895 ending up being almost $1,200 in the end. Now there's a new hive um, out on the market called Ivory Bee. And I met those people at Hive Life in uh, Sevierville, Tennessee at the conference. And uh, they have a kit that is really interesting. It looks like a barrel laying on its side. It has an arched top. The whole thing is designed like a cylinder, which they modeled after ancient beehives that were found in Israel in the Jordan Valley. Uh, like 5,000 years old, there was commercial beekeeping going on. So lots and lots of hives. So they designed this kit that you put together yourself. And they have a small one, a medium one, and a large one. I got the medium one. It goes for $599. And it has 15 frames in it. And it's a pretty small hive. So if I want them to put it together, it's $999. And they have a more expensive version than that. So if I wanted to put together we're comparing a 15 frame hive, very unique by the way. So 
apples and oranges to some degree, but a sample that's $999. So an Apame hive at $580 assembled, ready to go, ready to put bees in, um, the assembled ivory bee, I have to put an exterior finish on it. So there's extra elbow grease that's going on there. And if you're putting together the kit, you better set aside a lot of time. So one of the biggest things that uh, people gripe about is with the flow hive. Also, I have to include them because they're expensive. That's what's behind me over here. A flow hive seven frame classic. So if we're talking, the seven frame is the large one. They have six frames, seven frames, which match eight frame lang and 10 frame langs. And they get a lot of anger from beekeepers for their pricing. And uh, so here's the thing, it's $798 for the kit, which includes a bee suit and a smoker and a hive tool and gloves. So actually that's cheaper as a whole kit than the Bonterra Bees um, Swing View at $895. It's cheaper than the Ivory Bee Assembled Hive, but the Flow Hive you have to assemble too. But they don't have a unassembled and assembled price because you can't buy a Flow Hive Assembled. You only can buy it unassembled, so you're going to put that together. So anyway, what, are, what I'm saying is it really comes down to what do you want out of it how long is it going to last? That's the other thing. We don't know how long the, um, we're talking about Apame hives. We don't know how long they're going to last. I don't know of anybody who's worn one out yet. So we want to find out, you know, how long will that be? And will it justify the fact that it's made out of plastic? Because there are some people that are very, let's just say upset that plastic is being used in beehives. And we've had a plastic foundation for a long time. Um, there is some plastic. So it all, it's all a matter of, you know, what do you want out of it? What's it going to do for you? How much time do you have to put into it? You might not mind building your own hive equipment. So Apame, if you want to get bees through winter that uh, will be insulated, if you want the convenience of something that comes in a box that's ready to go, arrives this afternoon, put bees in it this afternoon, tomorrow morning, whatever, it's ready to go right out of the box. And by the way, there's no industrial smells. Sometimes when you get something that's made out of plastic, you smell the plastic. So you're smelling particulates coming off of it. Uh, there's no smell that comes from the Apame hives. So I think they're worth it, uh, depending on which one you want. And I have the seven frame nucleus hives too, which if I didn't have them, uh, you know, I went right in the garage and Pulled them off the shelf and set them up and put bees in them because I had a swarm that I needed to hive and it occurred to me that I have a seven frame Apame hive. I also have a seven frame, well I have a polystyrene nucleus hive that I've never even put together yet because I saw all the parts and everything and I thought, eh, I'll do that later. But I have to paint that. So it's a matter of how much work. So I hope I answered that question. Question number 12 comes from John Annapolis, Maryland. Four years as a beekeeper, processing wax with bee parts, and some honey. Is a five quart crock pot a good size for a three hive setup? If so, what are the steps? Oh, that's interesting that that came from John. All right, backyard beekeepers. By the way, I am, I always carry a bucket with me, a stainless steel bucket. And when I'm inspecting a beehive, I scrape away the burr comb and everything else as I go. Brace comb, burr comb, whatever goes in the bucket. 
I don't just flip it on the ground. Every time somebody throws it on the ground, I think, ah, that's beeswax. You can use that for stuff. Keep it. So I'm going to talk about this a little bit. Um, the crock pot. Crock pots, if you're pricing them, can be pretty expensive. So I wouldn't even buy the crock pot, by the way. And uh, the other thing is, don't do this in your kitchen. You take up space, you have uh, a mess in there. So I have it out on my workbench. That's right. I'm just processing wax. So why not put it on a utility workbench? Now, what do I have? I have a Presto fryer because they're dirt cheap. And what size should you get? 10 quart. Bigger is better when it comes to processing beeswax. So here's what I do. And uh, I can show you what it's like, first of all. Um, I just take all those bee parts and everything and I throw them in the in my fryer, my Presto fryer. And uh, I put water in there. So I fill it halfway, two thirds. But the first thing I do is, this will annoy some people because this is Mamby Pamby Backyard Beekeeping and I understand that there's no return on this investment, but this is what I do. These are cotton cloths that I buy in bulk. I buy them in bundles, right? And look, I have bullnose clips holding it shut. And I will show you what's in here. When I open this up, because um, there are a lot of options here, but I try to keep my crock pots as clean as possible. So here's a bunch of comb that you would get out of your hive, right? And that includes brace comb and everything else. Or even if you're cleaning out a dead out, for example, I don't bother with a lot of the brood comb, the super fibrous and everything. But anyway, I get the comb. I don't want to waste it if it's where it doesn't need to be. So I roll it up in one of these and then I clip it shut with these bullnose clips. And then I drop it into my crock pot and then I try to push out as much of the air as I can. I use these clips for weights too. You can put a rock in with it because whatever is inside this, you're not going to use, right? I know there's better ways. There's probably somebody that's got a YouTube. That's great if you want to share a YouTube where somebody did this really well. I just fill it up with water and here's the mess that I get out of it. So here's another one of these cloths, cotton cloth. And uh, here's the crud that you end up with on the inside. But the really nice beeswax goes right through the fabric, rises to the top and creates a really nice disc of wax at the top without this crud in it. Now, you might think that's a lost cause. What are you gonna do with that? By the way, 100% cotton is the only thing I would use. When you buy these in bulk, they're less than a dollar a piece. So what do you do with it now, right? Well, I cut it up into little pieces and these are my fire starters for winter time when I'm trying to start my fire for my um, wood stove. So it doesn't go to waste. You could use it to start fires if you've got a campfire or something like that. Because they are full of wax, you can use it over and over. You can heat it up. But, uh, and some people think that's wasteful because it's 100% cotton and why are you using it like that and then just throwing this away? Well, I'm not throwing it away. I'm cutting it up and using it for a fire starter. But I do want to describe the parameters that I'm using and why I like the fryer. Fryers have very low settings on them. So you can set up a fryer fill it two-thirds with water and uh, you can set that at 120 degrees. It's not going to help you when you're melting beeswax because you need a minimum of 145 degrees Fahrenheit to do that. That is 65.5 Celsius to melt beeswax. So, well, no, that's what I set it at. 
65.5 is what I set at. I set mine at 150 degrees Fahrenheit. And here's the thing. You'll find out that beeswax can be very brittle and cannot smell so good and can actually be ruined by the way you render it. So I use the minimum temperature possible to get it to go through these cloths, by the way. And if you've got 100% uh, cotton t-shirts, for example, you can use that. If you've got some thin material, if you find a real bargain on some, you know, cotton muslin cloth that's very thin, that's probably even going to be better. And then you can just clip it like I showed there with those bullnose clips and use those, of course, over and over again. And what it does is the, the wax rises through the fabric, goes to the top. You have a clean disc of wax. You turn everything off. It cools down. The wax disc retracts from the surface a little bit, retracts from the sidewalls. Then you just pull it out and you're going to find out that it's really great wax because you only heated it to 150. And uh, so when you keep those temperatures low, you maintain a lot more of the beeswax properties. It's very nice. And now you can rub that on the foundations that you're restoring. If you've got wooden starter strips and you're trying to get them to draw out a foundationless comb, you can start it with that. If you have 100% beeswax, it's good to go. That's what I do. So those are the steps. I put that in there in the cotton. I put the clips on. I put all my burr comb in there. Now the other thing you can do, let's say you're rich, right? Let's say you can have a really crappy crock pot and you can have one that's a little bit cleaner, a fryer, right? And the other thing is, these are things that people get rid of at yard sales and stuff all the time. You probably pick one up for $3. But uh, if you have one, what you can do is throw it all into a crock pot, put water in it too, but don't use the cotton, and then it will all rise to the top and it has all the crud in it, right? And then you break that up like peanut brittle, and now you put the peanut brittle stuff inside your cotton cloth and now you get a lot more wax at one time see what i'm saying because when it's the comb takes up a lot of volume so if you melt it down and get the crappy one first then you break that up put it in a cloth then you put that in your nice fryer and then you bring that up now you get nice clean uh, wax out of that but you get a lot more of it so there's lots of options to fool around with but my cautionary statement is Keep your temperatures as low as possible. 145 is the melting temperature for beeswax. Run it to 150 and don't get in a hurry. Just let it, let it slow cook. But it doesn't have to be a crock pot. I think fryers are cheaper. Presto sells them. I think Presto has been in business in the U.S. for like a very long time. But I think they've been bought out by a Chinese company. Question number 13 comes from Peter from Mundaring, Western Australia. We had a bee buddy meeting last night. One of our longtime members was advocating juicing watermelon or plums and feeding this to the bees rather than sugar syrup. Is it a more natural form of sugar or less inclined to give the girls dysentery? What are your thoughts about this? Okay, um... We hear a lot of people talking about different things to feed your bees. So I want to go back on that a little bit. First of all, watermelon is not comparable. So if you're juicing watermelon, it's not comparable to the one-to-one -one sugar syrup that we're making, right? It also is not going to give them a less opportunity for dysentery. First of all, the water content would be really high from watermelon juicing. And uh, 
even more so than one-to-one. -one. The sugar content in one-to-one -one is much higher and therefore it's a bigger carb resource for your peas. So the reason um, I say that is uh, a lot of people, I've heard every story, you know, about what to put in your beehive, what to give your bees uh, that's better for them because it's natural, comes from the environment, that kind of thing. We have to consider when we would feeding them a sugar syrup and why we're feeding them a sugar syrup. So for me, you'll hear me often say, I don't feed them. We don't want to feed them. Uh, we feed the sugar syrup uh, if we've got a late season swarm, if we've got a tiny colony that's just getting started and they need a jump start. So we hive a swarm, we put a load of sugar syrup on it to get them going. And that's because they're building comb and things like that. So I have to ask, when would we be putting, um, it doesn't matter whether it's watermelon or plums, when would you be putting that on your hive and why would you be putting it on the hive? And I also have a quencher on this too, but it does not, uh, sugar syrup with processed dry sugar mixed with water does not cause dysentery. Uh, what causes dysentery in your bees, first of all, is, is uh, the particulates that are in it. Sometimes they can be sick too, but the more particulates, the more um, mineral content and things like that that are going into your bees, the more it builds up into the gut and the more likely they are to have dysentery. So that's why even when they're fed dark honeys, it's like buckwheat honey and things like that, they need to be able to fly out and evacuate their digestive system more often. So when it comes to just sugar syrup compared to watermelon, they're apples and oranges because the watermelon syrup, I looked into it, one cup of watermelon juice. So, and this would be the highest sugar content because there's something about cubed watermelon and, and they're variable. So I picked the one that had the highest sugar content. So if we're feeding it to them as a carbohydrate that they would need for resources, that gives us one cup is 14 grams of sugar if we're talking about watermelon, okay? And then so 14 grams equals three tablespoons of dry sugar. So now if we do that, it's, it's exponentially higher. When we're doing the one-to-one -one sugar syrup, that's 16 tablespoons of sugar to one cup. So if we're talking one-to-one, uh, that's a much higher sugar concentration. It also provides them much more of a resource to build comb, to have a carbohydrate, and to, of course, have an energy resource. But remember, these are emergency feeds. I don't consistently feed my bees. I wouldn't because they're already storing their honey. The honey is what they're building, and the honey is what gets them through winter. If I put something else on in the wintertime, it's not in syrup form. So the established colonies will never see syrup, uh, recently this year, when we had the weather extremes during brood buildup, one hive was uh, showing signs of dying out just from lack of carbohydrates, and I did put sugar syrup on that hive. So it's an emergency resource. It's not something that we feed across the board. But I have a test for backyard beekeepers to find out, uh, see what your bees want to consume. So if you have outside feeders, we could find out if they would go for the watermelon juice, or you could also include, I believe, what was it, plums or something? So plum juice, watermelon juice separately, and then have the one-to-one, -one, which is a very light sugar syrup by standards of feeding, right? So if we put out now the processed sugar with water, and then the plum juice, and then the watermelon juice, and we set them out in feeders, 
see what the bees go after, see what they're demonstrating that they need and what they want to use. And I think I haven't done that test, but it's very easy to do. They're going to go after the highest sugar content because their point is to get, get the biggest return on their energy investment when they're flying out to get a carbohydrate like that. So I think that's, uh, I think we, it's just so light on sugar that it's not going to benefit the bees. So I think the part about whether or not it causes dysentery, if they're giving something that has a high water content and they're actually consuming it, then um, it's, they're going to need to make more frequent cleansing flights. Number 14 comes from Greg in Cincinnati, Ohio. First year beekeeper bought five frame nuke in April. Bees seem to be doing great. Two deep boxes, 80 to 90% full. I already saw a lot of capped honey. I recently added a honey super. I've done a sugar shake mite test twice and found no mites. In uncapped, uh, some drone larvae looking for mites. I haven't been able to find any but I'm a first year beekeeper. I'm probably not the best at finding them. I have everything to do an OAV treatment. Would you recommend I do a treatment as a preemptive measure? It doesn't seem like the OAV treatment hurts the bees. I've got everything to do it. Finally got some rain. Okay, so here's the thing. If you found no mites, uh, would I recommend going ahead and treating with oxalic acid vaporization? Now you purchased a nucleus, okay? So what I recommend to people is when they're hiving a swarm, you know, and that swarm is occupying a box, they don't have brood, they don't have cap pupae and anything else going on, on that uh, eighth day of hiving the swarm, I recommend an OAV treatment. What I recommend it in a colony that's established that has brood and everything else and is not showing a single Varroa mite. Um, I would not treat until they showed a Varroa mite uh, because treating, we don't know if it's the efficacy of it. So do you have also, depending on how these nukes are made or how the hive that they're put in is made, do we have a tray that we can pull out? Do we have an insert? Is there a screen bottom board? Some way that we can determine because um, we need to determine a mite drop. So for example, um, we've done the sugar shakes, we did the counts, you've done some drone uncapping and pulling the pupa out and looked for varroa mites on those and you found absolutely nothing. If you don't have a tray to pull out, if you don't have an insert to pull out and you give an OAV treatment, how will you know if it killed anything? You, you won't. So this is another reason why I like screen bottom boards with trays under them that are enclosed it's going to demonstrate the effectiveness of the treatment that we give. So unless you're finding mites, uh, I would not treat just as a, just because, particularly given that it's a nucleus hive that came with brood and everything already in it. Uh, the other thing you might check into is the cellar. Was there a treatment regimen? Is there a reason why they're so clean? Uh, what's the history? What do they know about the genetics of their own bees that they sold you when they sold you the nuke? So you might have uh, an actual, you know, very good line of bees that could have already been treated before, or they might just be genetically predisposed to do very well this time of year with mites. That doesn't mean you don't continue to check for mites. You do, but uh, I would not treat. Just personal opinion on that. Last question, number 15. 
finally here. This is from uh, Jim Hagerty. Fred, have you experimented with headlamps to better find larvae in foundation? My hives are in a shady area. My eyes aren't getting any younger. Okay. Headlamp. I'm glad this came up. New beekeepers. If you're going to have a white light on your head while you're looking at frames, expect bees to fly to it. Um, so they're in the shade. So you can bring light into the shade. You can even use... I like to talk about bu double bubble these days, but if you even had double bubble on a, you know, a sheet of cardboard or anything like that, and you just set that over where the sun is and direct the light to where your hive is, you would have a better area. The other thing is you could pull a frame and step out in the sunlight unless the shade area is huge. Um, I don't think it says what part of the country you're in, but bees in shade, depending on where you are, uh, Southern states, bees in shade get more small hive beetle interest, by the way. So I'm not sure if you want to, this wasn't the question, but I don't know if you want to keep your bees in shade all the time. Uh, the other thing is maybe there's a time of day uh, later on in the afternoon, especially in the summer when there's a raking light through that actually reaches that hive. And uh, you can do that, but a light on your head. Uh, the other thing that you can do is there are LED battery powered lights that clip onto things. So I would recommend um, having one that clips on and has the light right there and you can come over here and hold your frame under that to see the things you wanna see and that way your hands are free and it's not on your head. Um, and then of course the bees can go to that or be bothered by it if they want to, but they're not gonna to come to you for it. So you can try it, see if it's annoying, see if they come after you. But uh, there are lots of ways to get light. Sometimes when I'm looking into the cells, you can just use a little of their inspection mirrors. It's like two inch by three inch mirror on a stick and you can catch sunlight and aim it into the cells. And there's nothing brighter than that when you're looking into the cells to see what's going on. So there are a lot of different ways to get light to them. A white light on your head uh, might not be the best move. You can try it, but don't say I didn't warn you when the bees fly up to it. So that was the last question of the day. We are in the fluff section. Finally. So, <clears throat> number one, guess what's coming up? National Pollinator Week, June 19th to the 25th. So don't forget, participate. Maybe your way of participating in Pollinator Week is don't mow your yard for that week. Or spread the word, or get on social media and Facebook and stuff and tell people to let the clover grow right now for Pollinator Week. And see if there's something you can't do to promote pollinator awareness because it's not just honeybees, it's all the pollinators out there. Number two, this Sunday, Father's Day here in the United States. Don't forget, what's the number one gift that you can give a dad on Father's Day according to a consensus? Uh, be present. Visit your dad. Visit your father figure if you have one. Most of us had fathers at some point. If they're still around, I hope. Um, get in touch with them. Spend some time with them. Time is the best gift you can give. Back in the day, Father's Day was the number one day for receiving collect phone calls. Way to give to your dad. Moving on. Watch for queenless colonies. We already talked about that. You should be inspecting and making sure that they're queen right less than 21 days. So have them on inspection. 
deal. Pull honey frames. I uh, already had that here. If they're starting to fill up, you can relieve that congestion and get that honey out of there. Pull the capped honey out and have an early harvest, you know. Uh, what else do we have? Find a mentor or be a mentor. If you know something about bees and you're at a point where you feel like you can pass on that knowledge uh, during pollinator week, get on social media. Hey, somebody want to know something about beekeeping? I'd be glad to teach you about beekeeping. Or maybe you're new and you're looking for a mentor. Find a good mentor who has the practices that you hope to learn that keeps bees the way you want to keep them. Number five. Uh, oh yeah, think ahead because we have a hot summer coming, I guess, is what the meteorologists have told us. Uh, start looking into canopies and different types of shade that would allow the rainwater through, for example, but provide shade and at the same time, wind and rain can pass through nice and just not cook your hives. Lots of fresh water out and also here's what the bees are looking at right now. Different times of year, their appetite for salt comes and goes. So right now, today, here in the northeastern United States, they are visiting the saltwater feeders equal to the freshwater feeders. So for those of you who don't know, um, you can get something like um, sea salts, right? And if you've got fat stacks and you want to spend a lot of money, you can also get pink Himalayan salt, which is not sea salt, but it's salts and minerals. And you would add one teaspoon per quart of fresh water. And uh, not a mounding, not a heaping teaspoon, a level teaspoon to that water. And you're going to see that your bees will go after those minerals. So Morton sea salts were right on par, neck and neck, with the Himalayan salts. So same rate, whatever it is. So one teaspoon per quart, fresh water, mix it up. That doesn't mean that you no longer provide fresh water. So we keep the fresh water available for them for cooling and everything else, but adding the salts and minerals, and I did the full array, Celtic sea salts, everything else, did all this testing and found out what the bees like, and I'm passing that on to you. <clears throat> one teaspoon per quart. Don't think that more is better, by the way. A higher salt concentration actually can have an ill effect on your bees. So by keeping it light, that teaspoon, that's good. Putting out salt blocks and things like that, not good for the bees. All right, so that's it. I want to thank you for spending your time with me today. I hope that you're going to tune in later this week to see the interview that I have with Dr. Underwood, to also see the extensive, exhaustive review I give that everything BVAC. It's a neat piece of gear. I hope you tune in to see that. So I hope you have a fantastic weekend and enjoy Father's Day and then enjoy Pollinator Week coming up. Thanks for watching. <music>